0: Welcome to Creating True Crime, with me, your host, Mimi Miziko. Today's episode delves into the story of a photographer who became so captivated by death that he started to arrange and stage fatalities to satisfy his curiosity. However, even that wasn't enough for him, and he soon started yearning for human models to photograph. Thank you to Vix Mac, Lala J Colomo, Ben Jones, Ashley Rigby, William White, Sue VB Van Berman, Blanca Blanca, G1 Edwards, Selkie, and Nico for their support on Patreon. The list is getting long, but I will never stop saying thank you for your support. Thank you for voting on today's episode topic. If you'd like to join my patrons, you'll receive ad-free early access episodes, weekly Korean true crime vocabulary hinting at the content of the next episode, exclusive access to vote on future episode topics, and occasional bonus content. There are no tiers, so all patrons gain access to everything. If you'd like to support me with your love, find me on most social media sites at Korean True Crime. Sources are available for free on Patreon. Today's episode contains discussion of animal death and suicide. Viewer discretion is advised. Photographs have the power to capture moments and freeze them in time, allowing us to reflect on the past and remember what has been lost. When it comes to death, photographs can serve as a testament to the reality of mortality and the fragility of life. They can be haunting, beautiful, and thought-provoking all at once, exploring themes of loss, grief, and memory. For some, we have a picture of our birth, our first steps, first day of school, our graduation, wedding, and ultrasounds. A life cycle of photographs. But while once common, rarely do we photograph death. Instead, we place our most beautiful pictures of our loved ones at their funeral to remember them as they were alive. Often, we wish to forget that it ever occurred to someone we love. We remember their lives through their photographs. Open casket funerals are our last witness to the physical body of the person we loved. In traditional Korean death rites, the body of the deceased is kept at the house with the family for several days up to a week. After the burial of the deceased in a burial mound, depending on the beliefs of the family, a mudang or Korean shaman may perform rituals to ward off evil spirits or a geomancer may join the eldest son to the grave. There are many difficult, very specific rituals for death in Korea for each family member and those closest to the deceased. Women of the deceased family may also perform rituals for the mythical woman Princess Badi or Badi Gongju. You know, I love a little history rabbit hole, and this one is too interesting not to share. In Korean mythology, Princess Badi or the Abandoned Princess is Korea's version of a psychopomp, a guide for spirits in the afterlife, such as Shinigami in Japanese myth, Hermes and Hades in Greek myth, and in Christianity, Michael the Archangel acts as a psychopomp in some myths. The Korean story goes, In ancient times, there was a 14-year-old king named Ogu who was told by a fortune teller that he would have a male heir if he married a woman named Gildae. He was impatient and married her hastily. The young king and queen had six daughters in a row, despite what the fortune teller had told him. Queen Gildae had a taemong, or a dream of a child that she would have, which is still a very, very closely held belief in Korea. If you ask anyone, they probably have a story about their parents or family members Taemung about them. The queen's dream portended that her next baby would be exiled from heaven and be the reincarnation of the immortal So Wang Mo's daughter. So Wang Mo is the guardian of the elixir of life. Her next child was indeed another daughter, which we now know is due to the king's body and not the queens. But in his anger, King Ogu disowned the child and sentenced the child to death. The newborn was placed into a sealed stone chest and thrown overboard into the deepest part of the ocean. Yang Wang, the dragon queen of the waters, couldn't bear to see an innocent child punished, and safely brought the child back to the shores to the feet of a Buddhist priest, where he opened the stone chest at the temple. Recognizing the king's seal and the outcasted daughter, the priest and monks at the temple decided to raise her in secrecy, naming her Little Abandoned One, or Baridegi. As she grew, she showed signs of the god's favor and was incredibly intelligent. But, unable to tell her about her real parents, the priest told her that she was born from the spirit of bamboo and the spirit of the Paulonia tree, so she spent her days paying her respects to the forest. But a day came when the monks heard that the king was gravely ill and would die unless he found his outcasted seventh daughter. His first six daughters had disappointed him or abandoned him in his old age. The priest and monks were promised a pardon for returning body to the king and queen, and when she found out who her father was, she dutifully returned to him. The only cure for his illness was a medicine made in a mythic land far past India, Badi was the only daughter to agree to make the journey. It would be an extremely long and perilous journey, and as she traveled, she went through dangerous lands and even had to traverse the underworld to reach this mythical land, where, finally, after reaching the land, was only given the medicine after she agreed to marry a celestial being and bear him sons. It took seven years for her to finally return with the medicine, where she had to traverse the entire journey back. When she finally got home, the king was cured by the medicine. Because of her selfless nature, Padi's spirit in the afterlife listens to the death rites given at funerals. These death rites are named after her father, Ogu. She waits for the deceased one's spirit to come to her and she takes them safely to the afterlife. Because of her love, perseverance, and healing nature, shamans call to her for strength and wisdom. Shamans who believe themselves to have healing powers may believe that they are also descendants of Padi and the Celestial Being. In her honor, you may see Bamboo and Palonia at funerals or in certain rituals. In today's episode, we will look through the lens of a man obsessed with death and photography. His artistic hobby becomes tainted by his twisted desire to observe a person's final moments, the exact opposite of Padi, who went across the world to save her father. The morning of January 18, 1983, a group of boys began to shoot at one another, dodging bullets, returning fire, hiding behind trees. They played soldiers in the cold winter day. They took their fight into the forest up the side of Mount Hoam in Gero Gu Sol. The mountain was covered in leaves from the naked trees, which made the ground soft but slippery. As they moved further up the mountain, they noticed a large pile of leaves that appeared to be a person. Parts of the person were peeking out through the leaves. The boys moved closer, thinking that the mound must be a mannequin. It is never a mannequin, but I'm sure they really hoped it would be. When they moved some of the leaves, they found a woman's body, mostly naked. The boys ran back down the mountain to get help. Police arrived and uncovered the fully frozen body of the woman from under the leaves. The winter cold had slowed the decaying process, and it was uncertain how long she'd been there, but the forensics team estimated about three to four weeks. The woman was found without her clothes, despite it being the coldest time of the year. There were no signs of struggle, resistance, or injury on her body besides the natural decaying process. The initial belief was that she had gone to the mountain to end her own life by inducing hypothermia. She would have taken off her own clothing to quicken the process. The police needed to identify this woman and understand the circumstances quickly to know if they were dealing with a tragic suicide or a murder. Through fingerprinting, they confirmed her identity as Kim Kyung Hee, a 24-year-old barbershop assistant from Gyeongju who had started work in November and lived very far away from the mountain in Seoul. Lead investigator Kim wan Bae tried to trace her movements, but there was limited information available. The woman was found at a location more than four hours away from her home, and the investigators couldn't find any reason for her to be so far away. The mountain where she was found was not a significant or well-known location, and if she had intended to end her life, there were more accessible forests and mountains closer to her home. Although it's a very distressing subject, it's important for the investigators to determine why she chose this specific mountain. They continued their investigation with the direction of the chief to use profiling techniques, which had only been established formally in police investigative work since roughly the mid to late 70s. They believed the woman was murdered despite the lack of signs of resistance. Although she may have removed her clothing to induce hypothermia, she did not show any signs of hypothermia prior to her death that could be indicative of an accidental death or a suicide. The investigators used profiling techniques to study the people who had interacted with her at her job, leading to hundreds of interviews. One man stood out amongst the rest, Yi Dong Shik. The owner of the barbershop she worked at described him as their most peculiar customer, as he consistently tried to be excessively friendly with Kim Kyung-hee and visited her very frequently, always bragging about being a big-time photographer. The police obtained his information from the barbershop owner and visited Yi Dong Shik's house. The officers asked him plainly if he knew Kim Kyung-hee, and he calmly answered, Yes, I know her. I'm a regular of hers. They asked him about himself and discovered that he worked as a boiler plumber technician and was indeed an amateur photographer. The officers asked if they could see some of his pictures, to which he was very glad to oblige. They were also granted access to his home. He showed them over 100 pictures that he already had on display. He laid them out proudly and talked about each photograph's inspiration, He was a very unusual photographer, though, to say the least. Specifically, his photographs were mainly of nude women in bizarre poses. Most of the photographs were of women masquerading as corpses. They showed women staged to appear dead or dying with stab wounds, blood, staged suicide like hanging themselves, or other grotesque poses. The two officers looked through each photo, puzzled by the snuff-like quality of them, concerned that these were not fake photographs, but instead the trophies of a deranged serial killer. Of the two officers was actually an experienced investigator, Captain Saw, who never took his eye off Yirong Shik for a moment even when he leaned back against the wooden wall and pushed a singular photo behind his back into a space in the wall that was covered by a wooden gate. The captain demanded to see what Shik had hidden, and through methods we don't know, was given access to the photograph. Of course, this part of Captain Sal's recollection is vague. If the officers waited until being invited in, There most likely wasn't a warrant issued for them to search the home, so this would probably fall under illegal seizure if the photograph wasn't handed over willingly, which most likely it wasn't because of the incriminating nature of it. The captain retrieved the photograph from the wall, and it depicted a woman wearing a gray skirt and brown knee-high boots lying on a bed of fallen leaves. Her face was covered in the photo with a white cloth. The officer questioned Dongshik about this particular photo and why he was hiding it, to which he quickly answered that he had hired models to take pictures for his ongoing photography project about life and death. They continued questioning him, Why this specific photo though? Why would you try to hide this one? And he insisted that he absolutely hated this photo and he wasn't proud of it so he didn't want it to be with his other works. But the officer had already immediately recognized the gray skirt and brown boots as the clothing that Kyunghee was wearing the day of her disappearance. At this point, they hadn't mentioned that Kyunghee had died, so the conversation was still relatively casual. The officer asked if the model was Kyunghee in the photo, and Damshik calmly said, Yes, it's her in the photo. He said that he was a regular customer and that he had asked her to be a model of his. The officers took the photo as evidence that Dongshik was with her when she was on the mountain in the same clothing, perhaps on the day that she disappeared. This photograph was what they needed to connect him to her death, and they arrested him. Edong Shik's record preceded him. He had four prior convictions for special theft. Special theft is specifically theft with a weapon or breaking into a home to commit theft. This is typically referred to as burglary or armed theft in America. Who was this man that they had in their interrogation room, though? They had a woman who had died suspiciously on the mountain, unburied and undressed, and a photographer who was willingly and pridefully showing photographs to the officers that suggested many more victims. Idong Shik was born in 1940 in Daegu and lost both of his parents at the age of 6. He moved into a bad situation in his uncle's house and lived there until he turned 14 when he dropped out of school to move to Seoul to begin making money. He worked as a scavenger, or a majui for 15 years. This profession exists to this day and is also known as a rag picker, although this is now a derogatory term. Historically in Korea, this job is done by people in extreme poverty, during the Japanese colonial era in the 1920s onward. People working as scavengers would carry large baskets or carts and collect rags, metal scraps, cardboard, or waste paper. They in turn would bring these materials to junk shops for a small profit. I mean, very, very small profit. In the 1960s, a government program was made to register these workers so that they would be supervised by the police, and therefore be able to be controlled by the police, rather than homeless people making money that wasn't taxed under the table. This job actually still exists to this day, but the older people working these jobs are called people who pick up waste paper. As of 2016, when the last study was done, people who pick up waste paper from 7am to 4pm earn about 5,000 to 7,000 won per day, or roughly 200,000 won per month. I will say 200,000 won is close to $160 US now, so they're making about $4-6 dollars a day for 9 hours of physical outdoor work with no protections or benefits. The competition for picking up cardboard is fierce, and these workers have their set routines that they usually hold on to. If you come to Korea, you will see these workers almost every day. No one should have to work their asses off that hard at an elderly age, typically, to make less than the cost of a roll of gimmap potentially each day. But moving on, Edong Shik worked as a waste collector for 15 years for the government. During this time, at 23, he obtained his first criminal charge for theft and would rack up three more convictions in the following years. At the age of 29, in 1969, he joined the military and fought in the Vietnam War for a few years. But the details of his deployment are a mystery. He embellishes his importance and duties often. But we know that he was a prideful man and often, throughout interrogation in the trials, mentioned his time serving in the Vietnam War. When he spoke to the investigation team, he pulled out his keyring and showed them a shriveled leather piece on it. He grinned ear to ear and announced it was a human ear that he had taken in the Vietnam War. He said that it was because of this he was able to survive. He returned from duty in the Vietnam War during its final year of 1975 with a bit more financial stability in his life, and he had been able to break out of the cycle of poverty he was stuck in prior to his service. He had some savings and was able to explore his interests, and it was at an art exhibit that he stumbled upon his true calling. He was inspired by the works of an unknown photographer, and his love for photography was born. He met a woman shortly after, and the two of them got married in 1975. By his mid-30s and the late 1970s, he had taken the steps to pursue his newfound passion for photography. He submitted his photographs into contests and won his first award for a picture of a chicken slowly dying by bleeding out. This sets the tone for the rest of his photography, which was described as bizarre and shocking. But we can look back as this being an indicator of future behavior as he would continue to torture animals and photograph their deaths. As his photography skills continued to progress, he became enamored with Japanese nude photography books, particularly those that dealt with themes of sex and death. This new fascination soon manifested itself in his work and his photography began to reflect his sources of inspiration. His wife would actually partake in this photography as well. He wanted to begin photographing nude women, and his wife would be that first model. At first, the photographs just involved his wife posing nude in kinky positions, but later it would involve sexual acts with various foreign objects that are not generally used for that purpose. Suddenly, his wife goes missing, and after not being found, Yidong Shik moved on and married a new woman. His second wife and him would start a family and have three children together. She is now his ex-wife and has requested that the family's information not be revealed and their privacy should be respected. In 1982, he was accepted into the Korean Photographers Association, and his work was recognized with several awards in prestigious contests. He was evaluated as an artist who takes fresh and shocking pictures. He was working as a boiler plumber technician at this time, which was akin to a minimum wage job. He didn't make nearly enough to save up to afford the 1.5 million won Japanese imported camera that he was equipped with. His photography became even more bizarre after marrying his second wife, and he began photographing himself inside coffins with blood pouring from his mouth, or a picture of him dying from a knife being stabbed into his chest or he would stage a picture of himself hanging to death with dark bruised makeup on his neck and face to make it look more realistic. The dark turn of his photography really upset his wife, and they thought about it often. He wasn't satisfied just staging himself in his photographs, and really wanted to work more with models. It was at this time he started drinking heavily, and his wife was really concerned for their children being around this kind of behavior. So she decided it was best to leave him and took the children to Japan. Dong Shik began to spiral and put all of his focus into his mission to photograph a real woman's death. He began quickly searching for women to pose in his work. According to the police, there were hundreds of photographs featuring 20 women, not including his first wife or Kyung Hee. These photographs varied in subject matter from fetish work to staged death photography. It was during this time that he was searching for more models that he was able to build a rapport with Kyunghee as a regular at the barbershop and eventually would ask her to become one of his models. Kyunghee had started her work at the barbershop as a shaving assistant, which up until about 2018 Winter Olympics, when Korea did a massive sex work cleanse of the country, which is a topic for another time. But prior to that, barbershops were the most common front for brothels. Myeongshil, or a hair salon, often features barber pools spinning outside with the lights or a spinning colorful tube. But if two poles were featured spinning next to each other in opposite directions, it was more likely that this barbershop was also a brothel. These buildings had to be discreet because sex work was and is illegal in South Korea. To avoid any confusion, barbershops then started changing their spinning poles to have decals of women with flowing hair or customize them with the salon name. You can still see some places like this operating around, but it's much, much more rare now. Sex work in Korea has, for the most part, been ignored by the police, and this is largely due to the fact that most sex workers are foreign women. Kyunghee worked as an assistant shaver at this barbershop. It's important to note that this is known for brothels to use this title as a cover for the real job that the women were performing. It's not confirmed, though, whether or not Kyunghee was participating in this kind of work. We don't have any information or confirmation on this, but it's important to understand the context that this is likely a hidden business happening at this barbershop and why Edong Shik was visiting her weekly for haircuts and shaves. As a side note, I must apologize for my initial coverage of this case that I did on YouTube prior to Korean True Crime becoming a podcast. I often go back and find the original printed newspaper articles from the cases. I get a feeling of what's happening at the time and whether or not the article was on the front page, so. Whether or not people were talking about it. But in the articles from 1983, Yidong Shik and Kyung Hee were referred to as lovers, perhaps to insinuate that she was his mistress and he was having an affair. But also, it is possible that they also couldn't confirm whether or not she indeed was a sex worker at the barbershop, so they just called them lovers. Rumors stemming from this bled into other articles written online and in journals and other true crime programs, which led to the development that the two were in a secret relationship. This is completely false. She had only known Yidong Shik for three weeks since he began visiting her at the barbershop, but he had gone to the barbershop prior to her working there. On December 13, 1982, Idong Shik visited Kyung-hee again at the barbershop, this time with the promise of making her a real model with the potential to become rich and famous. He told her, You have a beautiful body, I want you to be a nude model for me. If you succeed as a model, you will be rich. Come and take some pictures tomorrow and I'll pay you. He eventually coaxed her into agreeing and they decided where they would meet the next day. That next day, Kyunghee Hee met Dong Shik at the base of Hoam Mountain as they planned. Dong Shik had told her that they would be taking a remote photo shoot where nobody could see them as it was a nude photo shoot after all. They hiked up the mountain to a secluded location that Dong Shik had chosen for the shoot. Once they arrived, Dong Shik told her that she would feel cold during the shoot and offered her a cold medicine drink that would warm her up and prevent her from getting sick. Kyung Hee, trusting Dong Shik, quickly drank the medicine despite it having an unpleasant taste. In interrogation, Dong mentioned that he had purchased the medicine drink at a store nearby with Kyung Hee so that she would trust him when he gave it to her, but that he'd switched it out with a bottle he brought from home, which contained poison. Dong Shik posed Kyung Hee on a pile of leaves and began taking photos of her as soon as the poison took effect. He took a total of 21 photos. The first 16 showing Kyung He starting to feel the effects of the poison, and the last five after she had passed away. The high dose of poison in the drink caused her death within minutes of ingestion. After her death, Dong Shik took a few more photos, posed her body, covered it with leaves, and disposed her clothes and shoes far away. Then he left her there without a second thought. Dongshik admitted that he wanted to recreate the dramatic scene of Death of a Soldier by Robert Capa, who photographed a dying soldier in Spain. Dongshik was confident in interrogation that he could talk his way out of his situation when speaking to the police. Initially, he claimed that all of the photographs were staged and fake, including Kyunghee's, and that she must have killed herself after the photo shoot. He even went so far as to dismiss any involvement on his part. However, the police interrogated him for four days until eventually he revealed a hidden compartment in his home where they found the original film for the photographs and his diary. His diary was filled with his fantasies of killing women and documenting their deaths. It listed all the names of the 22 women he had photographed, including his ex-wife and Kyunghee. Dongshik then decided to change his story, claiming that Kyunghee wanted to end her own life and he only agreed to photograph it afterwards. But the police knew that his story was not credible and continued to investigate the case using the original films that they found. This case was a turning point in forensics in Korea, as the original film captured by Dongshik's expensive camera was of exceptional quality, even by today's standard. The investigative team adopted a new technique to compare the original film and the photo to their evidence photographs of the crime scene. The photographs were sent to Japan for photo analysis, and this was actually the first analysis that noticed that the victim was slowly dying if you look at the photographs in chronological order. Copies of the film were also sent to Professor Hong sung Tech from Shingu University, an expert in photography. Professor Hong and a colleague, Kim Moon-hwan, magnified the photo to analyze each detail in the photograph, with help of the forensic team to help them look for signs of vitality. Specifically, they analyzed the woman's body hair. People who are alive react to temperature, such as the freezing temperature that Kyung-hee was in as she laid nude on the ground. The small hairs all over your body should be raised high as the muscles contract in your body to stimuli. This is called piloerection. As they examined each photograph, they were able to document that her body was reacting to stimuli up until the last photos. Each photo was different, meaning that she was still actively responding to stimuli which would not be the case minutes post-death. As they observed the hair on her body, they witnessed the hair lay flat and remained motionless in the last photographs. They could observe that she had passed away. During the investigation, the police also discovered the poison Kyunghee had ingested was industrial-strength cyanide, which Dongshik had access to as a boiler plumber technician. As all of the evidence was being gathered and presented to Dongshik, he realized that he had been caught, He maintained that he was not a psychopath despite being considered one by many. He insisted that he was merely an artist caught in his art. The way a human dies is art. I have always longed for this, he said. Dongshik was the first to spread the rumors that him and Hee were lovers. This is where the false information began and it wasn't until much later that those who knew her were able to clarify that no, she was not in a relationship with him. He told investigators that they were lovers and she had threatened to tell his wife. I believe that this effort was made to seem like he was a man murdering his girlfriend to take the heat off of the other women detailed in his journal and away from his missing ex-wife. Meanwhile, his missing ex-wife's family came to the investigative team and told them that someone had handed over a picture of the missing ex-wife wearing a kimono. The investigative team insisted that there was no evidence linking him to her disappearance, despite really not doing any investigative work into it. Detectives demanded to know from Dongshik where his ex-wife was, and allegedly he told them where he buried her. They excavated the area and found nothing and that was the only answer they gave to the ex-wife's family. The president at the time was military dictator Chung doo wan who was really concerned about foreign media catching wind of a serial killer. Korea was just about to host the Summer Olympics in 1988, and he decided that a serial killer would be way too embarrassing to their country for tourists coming. The police were pressured to cover up the case quickly and just send him to trial. Dong Shik was executed at the Seoul Detention Center four years later, after he converted to Catholicism and was renamed Paul, that was it. There is no justice, no investigation into the other twenty women, and the case was never revisited. The most heinous injustice in this case was the media's handling of it. Kyunghee's final moments, captured in photographs, were displayed for all to see in newspapers and magazines, despite them not publishing her nude photographs. Having the images on the front page at all is still deeply disrespectful. Meanwhile, photographs taken by Dong-shik were being sold at auctions in Japan and France following his execution, some of which could be literal snuff photographs. This perpetuates the trauma suffered by Kyung-hee's family and friends. I find it disheartening that my cases so often end in disappointment due to the way that they're handled, There seems to be a lack of empathy for the victims and very little effort made to seek justice for them. This was especially evident in the media's treatment of Kyunghee, who is portrayed as just a sex worker, rather than a human being deserving of dignity. The media's insensitivity to show images of her in her final moments is a testament to how people's thirst for sensationalism can override their compassion for others. With that being said, I hope you did enjoy today's episode topic. If you would like to vote on future episode topics, you can join Korean True Crime on Patreon today. Thank you for listening to Korean True Crime. If you'd like to hear more, follow the show wherever you're listening and be sure to leave me a review. If you'd like to send feedback, find me on all social media sites at Korean True Crime. See you next time.